This is Archive Atlanta, episode 245, Coca-Cola, part one. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday and happy new year. This week, I am tackling a giant of Atlanta history, maybe 2024, I'll do Marta the Olympics and all that stuff I always joke about, Um, but we're going to start with Coca-Cola. There is, understandably, a lot to cover, so I'm breaking this out into two parts, and I promise to get the second half done in the month of January. This week, we're talking about Pemberton, Candler, cocaine, caffeine, and the only historic Coca-Cola building that still exists. Before we get into Atlanta, let's back up and cover the brief history of patent medicines. The second half of the 19th century is considered the golden age of American patent medicines brought about from the rapid increases in industry and manufacturing, the rise of advertising, and the absence of drug regulations. In an era where doctors weren't always there to save you and hospitals were considered places where people went to die, patent medicines offered quick and inexpensive relief from common ailments like arthritis, indigestion, or even hair loss. In the post-Civil War era, Atlanta became the patent medicine capital of the South, thanks to post-war illnesses, poverty, malaria, yellow fever, and even ringworm. Because of the lack of government oversight, these medicines contained opium, laudanum, cocaine, alcohol, and tar, just to name a few. This leads us to pharmacist John Stith Pemberton. Pemberton was born in 1831 in Knoxville, Georgia, and grew up in Rome, Georgia, and attended the Reform Medical College in Macon, where he graduated in 1850. His degree was based in Thomasonian or botanic principles, which relied on herbal medicines and purifying the body of toxins. By 1855, he established a wholesale retail drug business in Columbus, Georgia, when he purchased the entire stock of pharmacist Robert Carter. During the Civil War, Pemberton served as lieutenant colonel in the Confederacy's 3rd Georgia Cavalry Battalion, and he was almost killed in a battle. So the story is that he sustained a saber wound to the chest and soon after became heavily addicted to morphine. Now, this was a really, really common issue amongst war veterans, and while searching for a cure to kind of rid him of this reliance on morphine, Pemberton experimented with painkillers that were morphine-free. By 1869, he was the principal partner in Pemberton, Wilson, Taylor, and Company, and the following year, 1870, he moved to Atlanta. There, he was quickly appointed a trustee of the Atlanta Medical College, and from 1881 to 1887, he served on the first state examining board that licensed pharmacists in the state of Georgia. In December of 1885, John incorporated the Pemberton Chemical Company, with officers listed as Pemberton, Ed Holland, D.D. Doe, and F.M. Robinson. The stated purpose was to, quote, manufacture and put upon the market proprietary medicines, end quote. One of those products was Pemberton's French wine coca. French wine coca was a knockoff of Vin Mariani, a French drink created by a French chemist, Angelo Mariani, who was openly obsessed with the medicinal properties of the coca plant and created a patent medicine drink of Bordeaux wine and coca leaves. The ethanol in the wine acted as a solvent and extracted cocaine from the coca leaves. Now, Pemberton's creation was only different by Mariani's by the addition of the African cola nut, which provided a source of caffeine. An 1884 advertisement does not mince words. It says, quote, The natives of South America regard the coca plant as a divine gift and speak of it as that heavenly plant which satisfies the hungry, strengthens the weak, and makes men forget their misfortunes, end quote. 
And another in 1885 that says, quote, is a wonderful invigorator of the genital organs and removes all mental and physical exhaustion, end quote. And my favorite, quote, the best known remedy for morphine and opium habit, end quote. The accepted story of Coca-Cola lore is that when Fulton County voted to enact prohibition in 1885, Pemberton had a scramble to remove the wine from his French wine coca and poof, Coca-Cola was born. And so I'm just going to put this out there. I'm not a thousand percent confident in this story, and I probably spent way too much time in this rabbit hole trying to find some evidence that doesn't really exist. So yes, in 1885, Fulton County voted to enact prohibition to begin July 1st, 1886, and that prohibited the sale of everything except domestic wines, cider, and pure alcohol. In order to sell wine, you had to apply for a wine license, and then the wine had to have been made in Georgia. So what many bars and saloons did is they switched just to being wine rooms. I mean, it was like an overnight switch and they would just sell wine. So this is where it gets murky. While wine was legally permitted, I think it's still very probable that Pemberton sought to remove it from his concoction in order to appeal to a larger audience. By 1887, it was being mixed with soda water by Willis Venable and served at Jacob's Pharmacy in downtown Atlanta. This is a great time to dive into a brief history of soda. Soda water itself was discovered by Joseph Priestley when he suspended a water bowl over a fermentation vat, dripping sulfuric acid onto chalk above it to generate carbon dioxide. The resulting liquid turned out to have a sparkling quality. He was one of the first scientists to isolate carbon dioxide and create bubbles in drinks, which is basically what made soda water take off. By the 19th century, soda fountains had become popular throughout the United States and Europe, and various flavored syrups were available to mix with the soda. So in Atlanta, Jacob's Pharmacy, Coca-Cola was still very much a patent medicine, and it was touted as a cure for numerous ailments, including the common headache. It was Venable who insisted that Asa Candler, an Atlanta pharmacist, tried for his headaches. Asa Griggs Candler was born in Carroll County, Georgia in 1851, one of 11 children to a prosperous family. At the age of 17, he served as an apprentice under Dr. Fletcher Bast from Baltimore, and eventually Candler went into the drug business in Cartersville. By the early 1870s, he had moved to Atlanta and worked for George Howard at his pharmacy on Petrie Street. The two partnered, and by 1887, he had bought everyone out and operated A.G. Candler & Co., wholesale druggists. Candler loved Coca-Cola. Pemberton had sold the Coca-Cola name to Venable and Lowndes in July of 1887, and then it was transferred to Wolfirk Walker and Company by December. But by April of 1888, Asa Candler owned at least half interest in the company. When Pemberton died in August of 1888, all Atlanta pharmacists closed their shop to attend his funeral, simply as a sign of respect. And that same month, Candler owned full interest in Coca-Cola. By 1889, Candler & Co. were operating out of a huge storefront and manufacturing department again in downtown Atlanta, and Coca-Cola was one of his new items. Now, he hired F.M. Robinson to manufacture and promote. And by the way, it is credited, the name Coca-Cola is credited to F.M. Robinson. He was the one that came up with it. So this is really the turning point of success for Coca-Cola. Now, Pemberton did not have a bad product. He just did not market it well. And Candler and his team were marketing masterminds. Almost immediately, Coca-Cola salesmen traveled the South. They would visit soda fountains. They would gather the name of their best customers. And then they turned around and mailed each of them a free coupon for a Coca-Cola. 
Soda shop owners were flabbergasted. Like some of them were mad. They didn't know what they were doing. And then they started to see at this time, soda shops were seasonal. They were closed in the winter. They started to see people come back in specifically asking for Coca-Cola. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. By 1896, they began plastering Coke advertisements on the side of streetcars. And of course, I feel like we all know a small town mural that has, you know, a Coca-Cola sign on the side of a building in basically every town in America. To give you a better idea of the success kind of in numbers, in 1888, they sold 25 gallons of syrup. And in 1900, it was up to 400,000 gallons. In December of 1891, a petition for charter of the Coca-Cola company was filed listing officers as Asa Candler, F.N. Robinson, John S. Candler, J.M. Barry, and F.W. Prescott. By 1893, they moved into a new building at Wheat Street and Ivy, and the following year they opened branch factories in Texas and then Chicago. Things were going really well until the cocaine backlash of the 1890s. I did an entire episode about cocaine if you want to get more in-depth into that, um, but in its earliest days, Coca-Cola was only served at heavily segregated soda fountains, which catered to middle-class white Atlantans. Once it expanded and began being served in other cities and other establishments, it was being consumed by all races and all classes of people. And that was a problem. When news reports of cocaine abuse and addiction began circulating in national papers, a few editorials were published blaming the drinking of Coke as a gateway into the habit, so to speak. In 1891, Asa Candler himself wrote a letter to the editor of the Constitution, and in it he explains that the Coca-Cola formula uses coca leaves treated with hot water, but one gallon of syrup, which makes 128 gallons of the soda, um, only contains half an ounce of coca leaves. And that, quote, any thoughtful citizen and prominent physician have got as much sense as they lack regard for correct speaking, they can readily see that a gallon of this syrup would not produce any decided effects attributable to cocaine, end quote. By 1901, the use of cocaine among black Atlantans was growing at an alarming extent and Coca-Cola was shouldering much of that blame. If that drama wasn't enough, in 1900, the Coca-Cola company sued Henry Rucker, who was Atlanta's United States revenue collector, for taxing them inappropriately as a patent medicine under the war revenue tax. So I didn't have time really to even understand what was happening here tax-wise, but from what I gather is there was a higher tax um, if you were a medicine or a patent medicine. And all of a sudden, Coca-Cola claims that they have never been, quote, held out or recommended as a specific for any ailment, end quote. The lawsuit actually went on for three years, and as part of the trial, a sample of the Coca-Cola malt was sent to the state chemist for testing. It comes out that yes, Coca-Cola has a small quantity of cocaine. And so it's not exactly sure, but I think 1903 is the accepted year that cocaine would officially leave the Coca-Cola formula. And that is replaced by massive amounts of caffeine and sugar. Now the caffeine would actually bring its own criticisms, but that's a little later. Throughout the 1890s, Coca-Cola remained a fountain drink, shipped to soda fountains as a syrup and then mixed with carbonated water on site. But in the year 1900, that began to change. While Joseph Biderhorn or Biederhorn is generally credited with being the first bottler of Coca-Cola, I think he lived in another state that I can't remember right now, um, the founders of the Coca-Cola bottling industry are Benjamin Thomas and Joseph Whitehead. Selling the bottling rights 
two different people was a very different business decision at the time. I think it was something new, um, but it really was smart. So what it did is that bottlers were forced to front the capital to buy machinery, packaging, you know, the water, the trucks, the buildings, the tires, like all of the work. And Coca-Cola just sells them the syrup and they are spreading this Coca-Cola syrup throughout the nation. Coca-Cola would later do the same thing with ownership of factories and plants. They basically wanted nothing to do with it. They relied on people like Hershey's Chocolate or Monsanto to produce the ingredients that went into their soft drink. So back to Thomas and Whitehead, they contracted with Asa Kintler to assume full bottling rights across America with the obligation that they would only buy the syrup from Kintler. The first bottling plant opened in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1899, but it fell apart very quickly due to some partnership disputes between the two men. The following year, Whitehead organized the Dixie Coca-Cola Bottling Company plant and licensed bottlers across the Southeast. And so he eventually actually creates a franchise system for bottling. And in, with that system, there are 16 more plants established and over a thousand independent bottlers by the year 1920. The home of Dixie Coca-Cola Bottling still stands today at 125 Edgewood Avenue. And this is very significant because it is the only building in Coca-Cola's Atlanta history, other than their current office building, that still exists. The Holland House, where Pemberton developed the formula and ran his business, demolished. Jacob's Pharmacy, demolished. Asa Candler's Drug Supply Store, demolished. The buildings where Candler manufactured the syrup, demolished. All previous Coca-Cola headquarters, demolished. And of course, we are not surprised. We are Atlanta. Um, but I do want to highlight then again, kind of showing you that this Victorian house, I think it was built in 1891. Um, it's pretty eye-catching. A lot of people know it. I think it's the Baptist Student Union at GSU now. It was only home to the bottling company from 1900 to 1901. Basically, they were so successful and they grew so fast that they had to move out. In the first two decades of the 20th century, Coca-Cola established the Coca-Cola Magazine, which was a brainchild of their marketing genius, St. Elmo Massengale, and they also fought to save the caffeine in their formula. So yes, this is the height of prohibition. There's no alcohol in Coke. There's no more cocaine. But the general public was really having concerns about caffeine. In 1906, Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture began prosecuting companies selling products with harmful ingredients. When Coca-Cola had dropped the cocaine, they increased the caffeine, and government officials believed that it was harmful levels. In 1909, 40 barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola were seized, and the subsequent lawsuit is actually named the United States versus 40 barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola, which I found hilarious. The final decision in 1912 sided with Coca-Cola, but then afterward, the Pure Food and Drug Act added that caffeine was one of their habit-forming substances. The United States actually appealed the decision in 1913, and then again in 1916, and they finally won in 1916. So with Coca-Cola kind of on the losing side, they voluntarily reduced the amount of caffeine in their formula. In 1916, Asa Candler was elected mayor of Atlanta and took office in 1917. Now, during his term, he sorted through a really bad fiscal situation. He led the city through the Great Fire of 1917. He ushered in World War I. Um, he did a bunch of infrastructure upgrades. It's probably another episode for another day. Um, but he was very, very focused on his civic duties. He took them very seriously. And so at some point, he had transferred all controlling stock of Coca-Cola to his five kids. He kept a small portion, but again, not a majority holding. His five children were Charles, Asa Jr., Lucy, Walter, and William. 
In August of 1919, newspaper headlines announced that Coca-Cola was being purchased for $25 million. $15 million in cash and $10 million in stock. And that, my friends, is where part one ends. If you need some Coca-Cola-related history to tide you over, I recommend episode 58 on the Candler Building, episode 59 on the Candler Mansions, which they all built with the Coca-Cola money. Um, Episode 123 is about the zoo, 146 about the airport, and episode 224 about the Candler warehouses. You should also definitely check out my friend Sarah's new book about Asa Candler Jr., which I will link in the show notes. So there you have it, the story of Coca-Cola part one. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to the podcast. There is a link on the show notes if you want to support the work. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.